Would you open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 21? And I would like to again say Happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers. Though today's message is not specifically a Father's Day message, I chose to go ahead with this in our sequence and in our series because it has wonderful application for fathers. And I hope, dads, you will think about the issues that we're going to address this morning, especially those of you who still have little ones at home and you're in the process of raising them for the purpose of turning them loose. And I think in our American culture today, that's not always the goal or the desire. And yet that is what we need to do as followers of Christ. We need to turn the children loose so they can serve Christ as he would have them. In 1521, Martin Luther had been invited, and and it was more than an invitation, it was a demand to come to the city of Worms. And he was told to be there by Charles V, the, uh, the emperor at the time. Luther had already been excommunicated from the Catholic Church by Pope Leo X. And now he was going to have to stand before the civil magistrates and give an answer for the reason that he posted those 95 theses on the castle, the chapel door in the city in Wittenberg, Germany. And I think most of you are probably familiar with that historic event. What was happening behind the scenes often, however, is not what we get to hear about. Luther had a friend whose name was, uh, well, he was called Spalatin. Um, he was called that because it was uh, similar to the name of the city from which he had come, but it was not his given name, but he's known historically as Spalatin. This friend of Martin Luther's understood what was lying ahead if Martin Luther would go to the city of Worms, give his defense there, and uh, it was not going to be a very pleasant experience. Luther responded to him with these words. He said, Though devils be as many in worms as tiles upon the roofs, yet there will I go. Well, what happened was, Martin Luther went. He was put on essentially a trial. He refused to recant the things that he had written because he had exposed a lot of the abuses of the church He exposed a lot of the issues that were related to the papal authority. And as a result, not only Martin Luther, but there were others who had preceded him and there were others who were contemporaries of him, of his, who also impacted this. But for all intents and purposes, these events are what really launched what became known as the Reformation. And the Reformation began a whole new um, examination of the scriptures to find out what it is that God had to say in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the Reformation was launched. However, Martin Luther at that trial was identified as um, a a lawbreaker, a, a fugitive from justice, so to speak, and the declaration was made that anyone who would find Martin Luther and kill him would be free from prosecution. And so his life was really in danger. But if he hadn't gone, if he had listened to Spalatin, 
it is very possible that some of the major events that took place during the Reformation never would have occurred. And a lot of the things that we enjoy today as believers in Christ really emanated out of the Reformation. A new understanding of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based upon the word of God alone. And that is the foundation upon which we are meeting here today. Jesus Christ, the only Savior, died on the cross for our sins. He took our punishment. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. And when we come to understand the desperation of our spirit's condition, when we understand how sinful we are and we realize there is nothing good that we can do, there is no price that we can pay, that would ever satisfy the demands of a holy and a righteous God. We look back and we realize that in Christ alone, the full price, the full payment for our sin was accomplished. And when Christ cried, it is finished, it was finished. The full price had been paid. And now the Lord calls upon us to respond in faith and to put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We owe a lot to those events that took place in the 16th century. But more than that, what we owe a lot to is the spirit with which Martin Luther responded that had been demonstrated very clearly centuries and centuries before through the Apostle Paul. What I would like us to see today in this 21st chapter of Acts is a realization that there are times we act as spalatins. We hinder people from doing what God has called them to do, as God called Martin Luther, as God called John Huss, as John called Zwingli, as John, or as God called these individuals. I'm saying John. As God called these individuals. They followed through in spite of the cost. So did Paul. And what I'd like to do is Approach this a little differently than than what we normally do. I'd like to read through this passage that Pastor Luke had read just a few moments ago. Make some historic comments as we go, or or maybe some explanatory declarations, remarks. There's there's a much better word. When you get the two of our brains together, we function well. Anyway. I'd like you to get a little bit of the background, and then I'd like you to look at the ways we can hinder people from doing God's will. Look with me, if you will, once again, here to Acts chapter 21. And in this passage, we begin with this declaration. You remember how the Apostle Paul had been traveling, and he was finishing up his third missionary journey, and now he's on his way back to Jerusalem because he wants to be back there by the day of Pentecost. It's a very special time of celebration. It was the day that the church began. It was the day that the Holy Spirit of God did a completely new work in the lives of those who had believed. And now, on this special day of Pentecost, Paul wants to be in the city of Jerusalem. So he's making his way back. But in the process of doing that, he's stopping along the way. And what we had seen the last time, at his last stop, he was in the city of Ephesus. Or actually not in the city. He was outside the city, but he called for the Ephesian elders to come. And he was giving them his last words. 
look back at chapter 20 just for a brief moment because I want you to see that Paul already knew things that are going to happen and be declared to him here in the 21st chapter. In verse 22 it says this, And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Okay, Paul already knows. There's trouble waiting for him in Jerusalem. Is that going to stop him? Not so far. We get down to chapter 21, and we find, Now it came to pass that when he had departed from them, he departed from the elders and uh, th- those who had gathered there in uh, outside of Ephesus. He departed from them and set sail. Running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Now, so far he has been moving on the western side of the Aegean Sea. He is now going to make his way from what would be the location of modern-day Greece over to what would be Israel today, the region of Israel, um, areas that were a little bit different geographically, but it's about, uh, oh, it's about a five-day sail as they go around the bottom of Cyprus. And you're going to see how he refers to that here in verse 3. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, okay? So they're moving east. They've got Cyprus to the north of them, and they're making their way over to the coast of Canaan. And we landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. Now, when the ship is unloading the cargo, we're, we're... kind of left wondering what this is all about. But what's happening is that the ship is taking cargo off and putting cargo back on, and it's going to last about seven days that they're going to have to make that transition. So Paul is not making any moves at this point. He's not traveling any further. Instead, the Bible tells us that he goes finding disciples. But that word finding is kind of a a pointed word. It means he had to go search for them. He had to look hard to find disciples. There were not many people in the city of Tyre that had believed in Christ. So he had to be searching for them. They had never met him before. This is the first time that they are actually coming into contact with the Apostle Paul. And so what he does, he spends some time with them. This time that God gave him while the ship is being unloaded and then reloaded. So he goes on, he says, Finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Well, who do they think they are? What they think is this. We are followers of Christ who love the Savior. And because of Paul's dedication to that Savior whom we love, we instantly have a connection with him and we love him too. And when you find out that a person is going to be going through some hardships, you try to stop them. 
The Spirit of God revealed to these people the same things that had been revealed to the Apostle Paul earlier. You get to Jerusalem, and you know what's waiting for you there? There are going to be trials. There are going to be chains. He may not know the details of this, but we know what happened. He got arrested, and his life was threatened. He was moved around. He was incarcerated for years, and he went through a terrible time of difficulty. So these people are trying to talk him out of it. But he won't hear of it. Instead, he said, when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Now, just a moment ago, I mentioned to you that this was the first time that the people of Tyre had really met the Apostle Paul. Look how neat this is. These people who don't know him, now love him dearly. Not because of anything special that he had done, but because of the bond that they had in the person of Jesus Christ. There is something that's neat about being a believer in Christ, meeting new people, and instantly knowing that as other believers, you have a bond. Have you ever experienced that? I I may have made reference to this before, but back when uh, the Cold War was still going on, And uh, they'd have the Olympics. And the Russians would compete against the Americans. I hated the Russians. I wanted us to beat the daylights out of them with love in in the boxing matches and and in the wrestling matches and and in the races and, and in all of the different events. When we beat the Russians, I felt really good about it because I really didn't like those people who were a threat to our way of life. And then from time to time, I'd hear about a Russian who knew Christ as his Savior. And then I met Russians who knew Christ as their Savior. Some of you may be familiar with the Slavic Gospel Association. And there were people that we had uh, come in contact with through that ministry in, in the first church where I pastored. And you know what was interesting? I didn't look at them as Russians. I looked at them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And there was a bond. There was a love that just connected immediately. And that's what's happening to these people. They're looking at Paul. By the way, you remember Paul didn't have a great reputation up until the latter years of his life when the Lord called him. And that's going to emerge even as he leaves this city and uh, of Tyre and moves on. Look at what happens as he goes. It says, uh, when we had taken our leave of one another, we, ba- we boarded the ship and they returned home. They went home, the people of the city of Tyre. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. All right. We need to stop again. Twenty years have passed since we last saw Philip. Do you remember who Philip was? Philip was one of the men selected to be what we believe were the first deacons. They were the people who were caring for the material needs of the people in the church. 
Philip, however, is identified, and he alone in Scripture, which is really interesting, he is identified as the evangelist. And what we had seen in his life was a willingness to share the gospel wherever the Lord would put him. And miraculously, the Lord took him into an area where he encountered a man from Africa who was on his way back from Jerusalem along the southern part of the Mediterranean Sea heading back into the area that today would be around Libya. And he is on his way, and Philip encounters this man, and the man is reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip walks up to the chariot, and he asks, Do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, How can I, unless somebody explains this to me? And he began in the scriptures to show this Ethiopian about the person of Jesus Christ and what Christ did. And this man became, to our knowledge, the first African to put his faith and trust in Christ as Savior. That had happened 20 years before. Why was Philip out of the city of Jerusalem? Well, a persecution had broken out against the church. And there was a man who was really the driving force behind that persecution. That persecution hit a pinnacle in the martyrdom of Stephen, who was also one of the followers of Christ, who had been set apart for trial and was essentially found guilty of blasphemy. And the crowd stoned Stephen to death and they took their cloaks in order to get a good throw at him And they laid them at the feet of a man by the name of Saul. That is now the Apostle Paul. Philip had to run out of the city along with the other believers. And he fled the city because if they didn't, they'd be put to death. Now Saul, whose name was changed to Paul is in his house. But there's a difference. Paul knows Christ. And this bond that they have in the Savior draws them together. And it says, he came to Caesarea and he entered the house of Philip, there in verse 8, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. The seven were those first deacons. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. These daughters of Philip became individuals who had proclaimed the word of God as prophetesses. Not necessarily telling the future, but proclaiming what God had already revealed through the apostles. You come down to verse 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Okay, here this is part of the reason why I wanted to set this background. We've got to know who these people are. In chapter 11 of Acts, verse 28, Agabus had appeared before. And he appeared just briefly. He appeared just long enough to tell the people that a great... um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Not a plague. Famine. Thank you. Who did that? Dave, thank you. I'm going to let you join brains with my wife and me. We're going to be a a mighty team here. There was this great plague that was famine. 
I was going to say, boy, that wasn't as good as I thought, but then I forgot what you said. <laughs> there was this great famine, and Agabus had predicted it. It was part of the reason why Paul had picked up some of the men from the Macedonian churches and was traveling with them back to Jerusalem because what Agabus had predicted had come true. This famine existed and these guys from Macedonia are coming along and they're bringing money to help relieve the the problem that the, the believers in Jerusalem were facing because they were ostracized from their communities. They were losing their jobs. Their families were turning their backs on them. They had no way of surviving during this famine. And so Paul's coming with these guys from Macedonia and, and he is now in the, 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 uh, the, the house of Philip and they're on their way to help bring relief to the people in Jerusalem trying to make it there by the day of Pentecost. Agabus predicted that. He shows up again. He shows up in Caesarea by the sea. If you look at a map, you'll see there's a city of Caesarea right by the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Beautiful town. It had been taken over by the Romans. They had built beautiful aqueducts and just a a gorgeous, gorgeous town. Paul's going to wind up there again, and we're going to find out about that later on. But Agabus comes, and he takes Paul's belt, which is a sash. And he takes that off, and he binds his legs, and his hands. And he says, this is what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt when he gets to Jerusalem. So now the prophet again has confirmed, when Paul gets there, there's going to be trouble. So what do the people do? Well, look what happens. It says, uh, well, let me read verse 11. So when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And that's where Paul was going to suffer. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Please do not go. Do you understand what's going to happen? If you continue to go to Jerusalem, you are going to find yourself in a terrible amount of trouble. Well, they cared for Paul. But Paul is saying, so what? My commitment is to Christ. And to the things that he wants me to do. I know you all mean well. I know you desire what you believe to be the best. But I'm going to tell you this. The Lord knows better what's best. And I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to obey him. And so in verse 13. Then Paul answered. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? That that little phrase, breaking my heart, means why are you trying to soften my will to do what God wants me to do? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, here's where it all should have started. The will of the Lord be done. In Ephesus, in Tyre, in Caesarea, 
all these people stepped up and tried to stop Paul from doing what God called him to do. Spalatin stepped up, meaning well, trying to stop Martin Luther. These followers of Christ, wanting what they believe is best for Paul, try to stand in the way of the will of God. And finally, when Paul's resolve will not be moved, they understand the will of the Lord be done. Do you know how many people hinder the will of God today in the lives of other people? Many. And you might be one of them. How do people hinder the will of God in the lives of others who are followers of Christ? Sometimes they do it out of a heart of love. That's exactly what was happening here with Paul. These people loved him. They did not want anything bad to happen to him. And bad meant that if you suffer, of course, that's bad, right? Not always. Not necessarily. There are times when the Lord lets people know, if you follow my will, you're going to have to experience very severe difficulties. And people who love us don't necessarily want us to get involved in those things. You know, this very thing had happened with the Lord Himself. When Jesus was telling the disciples about His coming death in Jerusalem, listen to what the Bible says occurred in those interactions. In John chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, Then after the two days, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, not long ago the Jews wanted to stone you to death. Do you really want to go back there? Now, I don't doubt for a moment that the disciples genuinely loved Jesus and they wanted what they thought was the best. Why would you go back to Judea? Well, Mark gives us the reason. In Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man would have to suffer a lot. He taught them that he would be rejected by the leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. He would be killed, but after three days he would come back to life. He told them very clearly what he meant. Peter took him aside and objected to this. Jesus turned, looked at his disciples and objected to what Peter said. Jesus said, get out of my way, Satan. You aren't thinking the way God thinks, but the way humans think. God has the whole picture. We don't. I know this could not have happened, but what if the disciples had been successful in keeping Jesus from going to Jerusalem? I know that that couldn't happen. It was in God's plan that that would occur. But what if they had stopped him? There would have been no sacrifice for our sins. There would have been no shedding of the blood of Christ that cleanses from sin. There would have been no resurrection from the dead. 
and we would still be in our sins without hope and without life. Did the disciples love Jesus? Of course they did. Were they perfect? No, they weren't perfect. We know that. We, we, we see later in Christ's experience with them that there were certain breakdowns, but they still loved the Savior, and now they're going to get in his way and say no? That's not love. That's desiring what we want because we think like humans. Say, well, how else are we going to think? We have the opportunity to think like the Lord through his word. And he says, it's time you start thinking like me. Sometimes people will hinder others because of fear. They know that difficult times are coming. Here, they knew Paul was going to be going to, to prison, and, and they're afraid for him. Sometimes people are afraid for the ramifications of what will happen if somebody stands up for Christ and makes an impact for the Savior. They become afraid of what may even be happening to them because the persecution has a tendency to overflow and to take others out in the process. And so fear will keep people from following through and, and encouraging others to follow the will of the Lord. When the Spirit of God directs a person into an area of ministry and into an area of service, there are times it is going to take you through deep waters, it's going to take you through difficult trials, it's going to bring hardships, it's going to bring sacrifice, but it is still the will of God. Do you need to be afraid? That's not rhetorical. If you're following the will of God, do you need to be afraid? Could you die? Yeah, you could die. Could you suffer? Yes. But I am convinced that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will follow. We are not living in heaven. We are still on a sin-cursed earth. And the glory doesn't follow till we get to heaven. So following the will of God on occasion will take people through some very difficult places. Do not be afraid. Sometimes people hinder another person from carrying out the will of God by virtue of misunderstanding Scripture. That happened twice here. With the, 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 uh, the revelation, the, the Holy Spirit giving revelation to the people in Tyre. They misunderstood the intent of the Lord. The intent of the Lord was not to stop Paul. It was to let people know Paul is going to be going through a hard time. Guess what you can do? You can pray for him. You can support him. You can encourage him. Instead, what do they do? No, 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 don't go, don't go. Um, when he got to Caesarea. Another misapplication of Scripture. Here is, the, when I say Scripture, revelation. I should put it that way. A, a, a misapplication of revelation. The Spirit of God reveals to them, Paul is going to be going through this very difficult time, and what do they say? Don't go, don't go. And that's not what the Lord intended at all. And that thing, that same thing still happens today. Here's what happens with people. Let me give you a misapplication of Scripture. The Lord says we are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Is that not true? Okay, so now how am I going to apply that? Well, there are many today who say, 
I can worship God at the beach. I can worship God in the mountains. I can worship God in bed. And they miss the entire purpose for which the Lord has said that. It is not to isolate us from believers, but from other believers, but it is to help us understand that worship isn't in form. It is from the heart. But the Lord has still said, we are not to forsake the gathering together of ourselves as the manner of some is. Every New Testament letter is written either to a, a church or an individual within the church. The, the plan of God is being accomplished through the gathering of believers. And I look at that and I see people misapply scripture and they say, Oh, don't I have the right to go just worship God and I can sit down by the beach? And every Sunday I get down there and I have great, great fellowship with God. I read the scriptures. And then the bikini walks by. Mm. I'm just mocking, obviously. Let's make this a little bit more serious. I have had people come to me asking about the will of God concerning their divorcing their mate. Well, what has your mate done? Well, we're just incompatible. Uh, we, we, we don't get along very well. And emotionally, they've, they've left me. They don't love me anymore and I just can't live like this and here's the counsel that they have been given by other believers well you know in first Corinthians chapter 7 Paul says if the unbeliever abandons the believer then you are not under compulsion you are not under the regulations anymore so you know what they've already left you go ahead and divorce them baloney that's false that isn't what that passage is teaching at all. You try to restore the relationship. You don't try to bail from it. And people misapply Scripture. I've had that happen several times. People try to misapply Scripture in order to make it look like they're really trying to help the person to whom they're misapplying the Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. And it becomes disgusting what believers do with the Word of God. That marriage relationship is a, a sanctified relationship that should be worked on and built. And even though there may be times when a person does follow through and divorce, and there are those that believe that never happens. I'm not of that opinion. I do believe if a person is perpetually immoral and unfaithful that the Lord gives freedom to an individual, to the other individual to divorce and remarry. I, I, and you don't have to agree with me about that, but if somebody comes to me for counsel, that is the way I'm going to counsel you. It, and for a number of reasons. But anyway, when, when it comes right down to it, you, you work for forgiveness. You work for restoration. You work for the couple that doesn't love to understand that love is a choice they can make and they have to work at the process of re-falling in love with the person that they had married. And even if they say, well, I never really loved them too bad, you start loving them now. And that's, that's a whole other issue. Do you, do you get what I'm saying here? Does this make sense? All right. 
now we come down to the end of this. People love us, so they try to stop us from doing God's will. People are fearful for us, so they try to stop us from doing God's will. People take Scripture, twist it, and make it say something it never says in an effort not necessarily to keep us from doing God's will, but because they think that human thoughts are better than God's thoughts and human ways are better than God's ways. And then they find out that they're never better than God's ways. So where does that hit us? You know what I've watched? I've watched parents hinder the will of God in their children's lives. I've watched children who have had a heart for the Lord and a desire to serve Him be raised in a family where professionalism is the most important thing. And by the way, being professional is not bad. We should be the very best that we can be, but it is never the overriding driving force in our lives. And sometimes parents have stopped their kids from following through in preparation to serve Christ. Why? Because they love their child and they're afraid that if they serve, if they prepare to serve Christ, well then maybe instead of becoming a very wealthy and influential business person, they might be a missionary who's tucked away somewhere in the jungle, earning nothing as far as the world is concerned, but living for the glory of Jesus Christ. And the parents stand in the way and say, no, 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 no. And I've even heard it this way. If you major in Bible or you major in missions in college, I am not paying for your school. Or if you don't go to the school where I want you to go, I am not paying for it. You want to go to a Christian school? Oh, don't you know those are just little ragamuffin schools. Those aren't for real college kids. I went. <laughs> and, they, and they say, oh, no, 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 no. And yet the Spirit of God is working in the heart of the child. You know who else is guilty of this? Pastors. Do you know how hard it is when people who are part of your flock that you love tell you they're moving away? Do you know how hard that is? I try to joke about it. Try to make fun of it. But I've had people in churches move away that honestly have been the absolute cream of the crop. They have been the spiritual leaders. They have been the people who have committed their lives to Christ. And they, they tell me, the Pipers, the Colettes, they say, Pastor, we have some bad news for you. We're, we're moving, um, sometimes out of state, sometimes way across the state. And uh, we're going to be going, oh, no, what are you trying to do? What's going to happen to the church when you move away? And the Lord has to spank me and say, do you think you're building this church? I'm building the church. You let those people go with your blessing. Because I've got work for them to do where I'm leading them. How many of our people have moved away over the past three or four years? And I'm watching them. Why would they go to Georgia? What, what's, they got the lousy Braves in Georgia. Why would you go? And sometimes we can make it hard for them to go. Um, sometimes friends hinder friends. 
I already gave you an example of those seeking divorce. And they get bad advice because the friends want to say the things that they believe their friend wants to hear. Because that makes for better relations. You don't ever want to say something to somebody that might offend them and say, you need to stop what you're doing and you need to get back on track with the Lord and do what's right. Oh, we never say stuff like that. It's always, everything will be okay. No, it won't. Not if you don't do what the will of God is. Um, Sometimes husbands keep their wives from doing the will of God. I can't tell you how many wives that I have seen growing up and now as a pastor who desire to be genuinely committed to Jesus Christ and their husbands stand in their way by not being the spiritual leaders within the home. Hey, we got this cabin up north. That's where we're going on weekends. But honey, I need to be in fellowship. I need to be using my spiritual gifts. Oh, we can worship the Lord on our boat. For three months, they're gone. And the wife is lamenting and saying, Oh, I want the fellowship. I want to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. But I have a husband that will not be the spiritual leader in our home. And he will not be the one who is leading our family in ways of righteousness. And then there are wives who hinder their husbands from carrying out the will of God. The husband senses God's call. And he says, you know, I think the Lord would have us leave our business now or leave our occupation, leave our profession, and uh, take our, our medical skills and go to Bangladesh and help people there. And the wife says, are you crazy? Leave all this. And she stands in the way and she says, if you go, you're going alone. What if they get their will? You think as humans. You're not thinking as God thinks. Wouldn't it be far better if all of us would say this? We want you to follow the will of God no matter where it leads. Because we love you. And we are afraid of what could happen if you don't do the will of God. Wouldn't that be better? Dads, it's Father's Day. You lead the way. You be the one that says, no matter what the cost, we will follow God's will. Let's stand. Father, your word is tough. It takes us down paths that are difficult. They're rocky. They're filled with danger. They're surrounded by enemies. And yet walking in the center of your will is the safest place anyone could possibly be. Help us to understand that this world, this life that we're living now, is temporary. It appears for a short time. Then it vanishes away. And that which we do for your honor and glory will follow us into eternity.
Help us, Father, not only to do your will, but to encourage those who are called to do so. For the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Have a wonderful day.